Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you again for the uh, privilege, the chance to speak here. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 10. Book of Luke chapter 10. Five verses. A little tiny story. Tucked away in the, in the Luke chapter 10. And yet so much to teach us. Luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42. The end of the chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessing upon this time as we look into your word. Open it. Open our eyes to it, Lord. Open our hearts to its message. May we understand and be blessed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And it says, And it came to pass, as they went, he entered into a certain village. We know the name of this village. Not from this passage, but from other passages in John. The village is Bethany. It's fairly close to Jerusalem, sort of outer suburbs stuff, not, well, further out than outer suburbs. It's a bit like Sunbury is to Melbourne. It's there, but no one sort of notices it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a little, it's a a village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And and you wonder, this is the first mention of these people. Here And it says, and he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Already there are some things that are raised here, some questions. Why did he come to her house? Had she known him beforehand? There's no evidence that she'd ever met him before this time. But. Look back at the start of chapter 10. And after verse 1, it says, And after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Ah, now we know why he came here. Because he'd intended to come to Bethany on his, his travels and he'd sent to a a pair, one of these 35 pairs of people and sent them to Bethany to prepare for his coming. And it would be most likely that Martha had sent a message back with these people saying, when he comes to Bethany, stay at my place. So he comes to Bethany and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. Now there's another question that's, that's raised here. There is no sign of a Mr. Martha. Nor for that matter later on, any husband to Mary. It would indicate from what we have seen, since that normally the house would be referred to as his house if they were married, that she was not married, nor was Mary. We also know from, from the Gospel of John that they had a brother, a younger brother apparently, named Lazarus. And where's Lazarus here? Doesn't write a mention. This starts to, to, to raise some questions and I would submit that there is a simple answer to this. 
Some people have said, oh, no, Lazarus had another house somewhere else or Lazarus was in Jerusalem. I, I say it's more likely, given a knowledge of the customs of the day, that Lazarus was very young. That the three siblings, Martha, Mary and Lazarus, had been left by the death of their parents having to run whatever family business or system they had there. Most likely, it's indicated that these were reasonably well-off people. Bethany was well known for its olive groves. It would be a a, a thing which a woman could run given the ability to hire servants to, to run the olive groves. Once you get an olive grove established, it pretty well runs itself. You just go there once a year and collect the olives. It's, it's not that difficult. And so we have Martha as the eldest in charge of the house. Mary there as well. And Lazarus, just a kid, not yet able to take his place as the head of the house. And therefore, not, not even mentioned in this story. You know that there is not recorded in scripture one single word that Lazarus spoke. Not a word. Interesting. Again, indication that he was young, just a kid. So we have Martha running a household. And given that she had the authority over the household, she makes this invitation and says, come and stay here. So Jesus comes to Bethany and she's received into his house. Why was he coming to Bethany? Well, you go back again, go back to the previous chapter, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Oh, that's why he was headed down to Bethany. He was going to Jerusalem. And it was a convenient staging place. Why was he going to Jerusalem? It is not yet Passover. When is it? It is the Feast of Tabernacles. What do we know about the Feast of Tabernacles? Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 42. Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 42. We have the Feast of Tabernacles. Starting at verse 41. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the institution of the Feast of Tabernacles. So what would happen once a year, everybody would get out of the house and they'd build a little hut out of tree branches and they'd stay in there for a week. They'd go camping sort of for a week. This was to remind them that on the way out of Egypt, 
They didn't have a home. They dwelt in temporary dwellings. Now, this was particularly a good thing in Bethany. And especially at this time of year, because it was hot. So people would set up, not so much a, a hut, but just a covered area, nice and shady and cool with the branches, and they'd stay underneath that out in the, in the, the breeze and everything during this week. Now I want you to picture where we are in this house. The house being the house of a reasonably wealthy person in Bethany had a central courtyard. This is the way they were built. They were built in like a hollow square with a central courtyard. That courtyard, if you were well off, was paved. If not, it was beaten down earth and, and quite smooth. And so they would put these branches right over the top of the courtyard. And so you would go in underneath this cool, shady green area for the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has walked into Bethany. Martha has said, come on in. The house is open to you and your disciples. And there is this beautiful, cool, shady area right in the middle of the courtyard. And he goes in there and the indication is that he sits. And as he was there and all the people were around, he began to teach. And someone came up. Verse 39. She also, and she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Mary and Martha are two very, very remarkable women. Martha is remarkable that in a day when women traditionally did not do business or run things, she ran not only a household, but was looking after a younger sister and a brother. And she was running things. A remarkable woman. Mary is also remarkable. Because we said, it's told that he, she sat at Jesus' feet and listened. Understand, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis and listen and learn. This was a time and a culture where women, it, believe me, it were, there was no equal opportunity in first century Palestine. For a woman to sit and listen and learn at a rabbi's feet was so unusual, almost scandalous. And Mary does it. Let's consider this for a moment. You know what a, how the Pharisees would, would make public prayer? They would go big on public prayer. One of their prayers, first thing in the morning was this, Lord, I thank thee that you have not made me a Gentile or a sinner or a woman. Charming, isn't it? 
charming. That's the way the Pharisees looked at it. They grouped Gentiles, open sinners, women, you know, three of a kind. Now, that, that starts to make you wonder. Why are so many religions, why do they have this attitude towards women? Consider, and, and I don't care if anybody's taking notes, you can report me if you like. In the Muslim world, under Sharia law, a woman's word is only worth half of that of a man in a courtroom. Allah only considers you half as good as a man. You are considered to be something better than a goat, but not quite as valuable as a camel. Allah hates women. Ever wondered why? In the Hindu religion, in the Hindu religion, if you want to get your parents to nirvana, the best thing you can do is to have the body burnt on the banks of the Ganges and the ashes washed in there. But only can that funeral cremation be lit by a son, not by a daughter. In other words, if you're a Hindu and you're a woman, your parents can't get to heaven and it's your fault because you're born a woman. What? You think, hang on a minute, this is... What, why are they so down on women? In India, there are 43 million men who will never marry because of the number of girl babies who have been murdered. Yeah. The Hindu gods hate women. Why? You think, you think it's better over in the Western world? You know those, those guys in the, the black suits and the, the white shit, little short sleeve shirts who come up? You know, neither of them can shave and they go... Hi, I'm Elder Smith and this is Elder Johnson. Right? Out from Salt Lake City. Mormons. Are you aware that the Mormon teaching indicates that women are pulled into heaven by their husbands? That a woman cannot get to heaven by herself. The Mormon God hates women. Why? Why do these religions have such a, 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 a bad attitude and, a, and a, 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 a hateful thought towards women? Well, consider where they started. Go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. Sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God is speaking to the serpent, starting in verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, to Satan, to the devil, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. 
And between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. There is enmity forever between Satan and women. Satan hates women. Why? Because she is a reminder every time he sees a woman that he is cursed and that through her will come the seed which will destroy him. There is enmity between the devil and women. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, that it says that whatsoever the Gentiles sacrifice unto, they sacrifice not to God, but to demons. These false religions are headed up behind the scenes by Satan, and they hate women. So, what does God say about this situation? In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26, it says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture says. That before God, you are all one in Christ. And the divisions of the world, Jew and Greek, the world in the, in the first century, you were either a Jew or a Greek. They didn't consider there was anybody else. You were either bond or free. You were either a slave or a slave owner. There was no one else. You were either male or female. And, and we are told that these divisions are meaningless. In Christ. Now I know some people will say, but hang on, women can't, are not allowed to preach and all these things. Well, I've got news for you. You say, well, women aren't allowed to be pastors? Not every man can be a pastor. Don't fool yourself. Any man cannot be a pastor. Any man cannot be a deacon. Any man cannot take on any office. There are certain offices that, that men cannot take on. Men are not called to be mothers. Sorry, don't matter how hard you try, you're not going to make it. God has not called you to that office, nor will he. You see, and I remind you too that that is in the church as it is in a family that people have different responsibilities. And in the church, people have different responsibilities. I'm saying, what it says there in Galatians is, in Christ, when you come before God, there is no distinction. There is no difference. Christianity is the only religion. Not only, not only was it the first, it is the only religion which makes no distinction between people on that basis so that was just a a little extra piece we're back in Bethany we're in Bethany in this beautiful courtyard Jesus is there possibly sitting on a, a little low stool sort of a bench he's teaching and around him are the disciples and possibly other people from Bethany. 
Invited in, come and hear this man speak. For never a man spake like this man. This guy is someone special. Come and listen. And there at his feet is Mary. Martha, she's going backwards and forwards, probably walking through this area, and she's getting madder and madder and madder. Because it says Martha was cumbered about much serving. She was burdened with much serving. And she came to him and said, Lord, dost you not dost you not care? Don't you care? Now, straight off, I put to you that Martha is out of line here. To accuse Jesus of not caring, it's a bit of an insult. And secondly, why is she talking to him? Why didn't she say to Mary, Mary, I need some help? No. She says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that uh, this, my sister is, is taking up, you know, is wasting her time listening to you? It's a bit of an insult to a guest. So what, what is the problem here? You see, Martha is beginning to blame Jesus for the fact she is stuck with all the work. Because if Jesus wasn't there, well, then Mary would be available to help, wouldn't she? And so because Mary is busy listening to Jesus, Martha's got stuck with the work. And she begins to resent it. Lord, dost thou not care? My sister hath left me to serve alone. Left her to serve alone. That indicates that probably when they started, Mary was, was doing some of it too. And, and, you know, you sort of, each time she went past the courtyard, she got a bit slower and a bit slower listening to what Jesus was saying. Eventually she stopped going at all and she was just there listening. And she maybe she stood there listening for a while and then she got a bit closer and eventually she was sitting right at the feet of the master, listening to what he said. Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus' first two words indicate, he goes, Martha, Martha, relax. Stop worrying. He refuses to rebuke Mary. Absolute refusal. Jesus never, ever rebuked anybody who wanted to come and listen to what he had to say. He says to Martha, Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful. Now, in that word careful, it's the old meaning of careful. We think of careful as particular. No. This is the old meaning of careful. Literally, full of care. Martha, you are full of care and worry and troubled about many things. Martha, you have a lot on your mind. Martha, you have got a lot of things happening. 
But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen the good part. Now I, I put it to you, and, and and look, and this is a this is a problem. I know people who still take Martha's side here. There are still people who say Jesus was wrong and he should have told her to get up and help. We're missing an important point. Was Martha doing a good thing? Yes, she was. Martha was doing a very good thing. She was attempting to prepare a meal for the most honoured guest her household could have. Good thing. Was Mary doing a good thing? Yes. Now, Christian, all so often in our lives, we find that the enemy of the best thing you can do is not something evil. It's something good. What Martha was doing was good. But what Mary was doing was better. And so often, the good is the enemy of the best. I submit to you. Now, I, look, you, you, please, if you're sitting here, Pastor Frank, he's going to start twitching now because for a while this is going to sound, you know, pretty harsh for him. If you are doing so much work in the church that it is interfering with your personal relationship with Christ, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. Your personal relationship to Christ comes first. And I'll guarantee that if you have, that if everybody here had their personal relationship with God on the right level, there wouldn't be a worry about whether there was enough people to do the work or not. If our hearts are right with God, our bodies will follow. The problem is that people use that as an excuse for not working and their hearts aren't right with God anyhow. Martha was preparing a meal. Don't you love people who prepare meals, women who cook? Isn't it great? But you know something? Did Jesus need that meal? Did the one who could feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and a few sardines depend upon Martha for a meal. No, he didn't. He was giving her the privilege of serving him. Serving Christ is not a burden, it is a privilege. And if we get this idea that working for Christ and working for God is somehow a burden and a duty... We've got it wrong. It's a delight and a pleasure. God doesn't need your stuff. Oh, he's twitching already now. 
He has run his church for the last 2,000 years on widow's mites. Doesn't need your stuff. He gives you the privilege of giving it to him. For one day in glory, you will see what your stuff did and realize that it was no burden but a privilege. To be at the feet of Christ is something far more important than giving him a meal. To listen to his word and learn of him is far more important than getting the bedchamber aired and ready for him. Jesus wants us at his feet, listening to him. There will be time enough for service. There will be time enough for all the things that need doing. But first, we need to get our hearts and minds right with God through the power of the words of Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean to be at the feet of Jesus? First up, to be at the feet of Jesus is a place of learning. Notice that it says that she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. It's a, to be at the feet of Jesus is a place where you learn from him. You know, in Acts chapter 21, 21 I think it is, when Paul speaks of his time being educated, he says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel and everybody went, oh, and we mentioned him in the reading this morning, you know. That was the same Gamaliel. He was a teacher of great renown. And to have been listed as one of the students who sat at the feet of Gamaliel meant that you were an educated person. Not just educated in words, but you'd learnt of this man's style and intelligence and piety. Which we also read that this was a wise man. To sit at the feet of Christ is to be in a place of learning. There's more. To sit at the feet of Christ is to be in a place of deliverance. Look back at, at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 35. When Jesus casts out the demons at Gadara, it says in verse 35, And they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is a place of deliverance. It's a place of freedom from the power of Satan and the pressures of the world. To sit at the feet of Christ and to hear his word means not only you are learning, but you've been delivered from the bondage of Satan. To sit at the feet of Christ is more still. Look further back into Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 38. 
Starting at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. To sit at the feet of Christ is to be in a place of repentance. There's, it's to be in a place where you recognise your sinfulness and come to the feet of the one who can deliver you. To sit at the feet of Christ is a place of learning, it's a place of deliverance, it's a place of repentance. It's also more than that. Still in Luke. Still in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 verse 41. Luke chapter 8, verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jarius, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come to his house, for he had only a daughter about 12 years of age, and she lay dying. To sit at the feet of Christ is to be in a place of supplication. It's a place where you can come and present to him your needs and your wants and your desires and he will hear you. A place of learning, a place of deliverance, a place of repentance, a place of supplication. It's still yet more. Turn forward to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 verse 15. We'll come to this again probably in about 12 months' time when we get this far in Luke. But in Luke chapter 17, there are some, some lepers cleansed. And in Luke 17 verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. To be at the feet of Jesus is to be in a place of praise. It's a place of praise. We'll, we'll go over to John now. John chapter 11. What does it mean to be at the feet of Jesus? A place of learning, a place of deliverance, a place of repentance, a place of supplication, a place of praise. In John chapter 11 we see, yes, it's her again. It's Mary. John chapter 11 Verse 32, and when Mary was come where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not have died. It is a place of consolation. It is a place of consolation at the feet of Christ where you can come and pour out your heart and say, Lord, he's gone. He's dead. And find there the consolation you need. One last one. Turn over into John chapter 12. John chapter 12 verse 3. Then Mary, and yes, that's the same Mary, took a pound of ointment of spikeguard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the whole house was filled with the odour of the ointment. It's a place of worship. She was worshipping there. What does it mean to be at the feet of Jesus? 
a place of learning where his word is there, a place of deliverance where his word has power, a place of repentance where we realize who we are and what we need, a place of supplication where our prayers can be made and our, our, uh, we can implore him for what's needed. It's a place of praise where we can, we can respond to what he's done for us already. It's a place of consolation where the sin-sick and broken soul can find relief. And it's a place of worship where the God of the universe can be worshipped properly, the feet of Jesus Christ. And you know one more thing it is? One more thing the feet of Jesus is. It's a place of reunion. Some of you would know that old hymn. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. God be with you till we meet again. It's a place of reunion where we will meet those who have gone before at the feet of Jesus in heaven. Christian, are you running around cumbered by much serving? Doing things which are good at the expense of the things which are best? Have you let the cares and the problems of this world get between you and the Saviour? Then he says to you, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about so many things. Come here and sit next to your sister for a while and listen at the feet of the Master and you'll find these things. Brethren, the feet of Jesus is where we as Christians should be this place of learning worship repentance supplication remain at the feet of Jesus until it becomes a place of reunion and we meet at Jesus feet thank you